But the second one, all about greenwashing, which is a very topical issue today, and how initially I wanted to look at how companies were wrapping themselves in the language of sustainability to try to fool consumers to buy their stuff. But the more I did work on that and the more I peeled back the layers, I realized, oh my gosh, it's not just corporations, it's it's governments, it's celebrities, it's influencers, it's everybody is doing this. So the book got bigger and bigger and bigger and it ended up the size that it is. It's it's quite a quite a hefty volume. So that's the 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 piece with the great greenwashing is to really inform people as much as possible around the things that are going on so that they can educate themselves and protect themselves against the lies that corporations, governments and, and influencers are peddling. Hi everyone, welcome to Now Boarding, a new travel podcast by me, Payal Nair. This show aims at creating awareness about ecotourism, sustainable tourism, responsible travel, and a lot more. We will cover stories and journeys of people who are ecotourism specialists and those who are leaders in their field. We will also be talking to people who have had unique travel experiences, remarkable conceptual places to stay, unexplored cultures and ancient histories of various towns and cities around the world. Join me in this journey of knowing more about travel. Get inspired to see the world and discover your inner self. Hi everyone, today I am in conversation with John Pabon. John is the founder of a strategic communications firm. It's called Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. And the mission of the firm is to help companies, governments, and individuals to capitalize on the benefits that sustainability offers. And John also has two books to his credit. The title of the books are kind of long, but (laughs) I will still, because I want to introduce the books as well so the first one's called sustainability for the rest of us your no bullshit five-point plan for saving the planet and the second one is the great greenwashing how brands governments and influencers are lying to you so we will definitely talk a little bit about your books as well but before that thank you for joining me in this conversation today john no, thank you very much for having me. You can blame my editors for the long titles. <laughs> so I think for your third book, you have to ask them to to try and... No, but it it's interesting because it kind of, when you read the title, you already get an idea of what the books are going to be about before you even open the first page. So I think that that's good. Okay, so let's begin with a little bit about your background and how you got involved in sustainability. And I understand that you worked for a few years at with the United Nations. So how did that come about? And what is it that you were doing when you were working with the UN? Absolutely. So I've been in the space in and out for, gosh, it's been like two decades-ish now. But like you mentioned, I did start my career at the United Nations in a few different capacities. They tend to appreciate generalists there and they throw you around where they need you. So post-conflict peace building, nuclear disarmament, counterterrorism, again, as a generalist, not as somebody with a super deep knowledge in any of those areas. I then left on the advice of a few mentors to go into the private sector to really beef up a lot of my experience. So worked at 
AC Nielsen and McKinsey as well. And then coincidentally took a trip to China in 2008, I believe, and was just absolutely enamored with everything and sort of jaw-dropping experience being there. So decided to pack things up and leave New York and go to Shanghai, which was only supposed to be for a few years, but ended up being close to a decade. Uh, but the thing about that was I needed to figure out how to use all of this public sector experience that I had gained in the United States in an extremely commercial city like Shanghai, very commercially minded. So I kind of fell into sustainability sort of by accident, because it is in a lot of ways the marriage of public sector doing good with, at least in what I do, working with the corporate private sector to help them create better, better models and strategies. So worked with BSR, who's sort of the McKinsey of the sustainability world before starting, as you mentioned, Fulcrum. And our focus really is more on the governance and communications side of sustainability. And again, helping out corporations to make sure they're doing what they say they're doing. Okay. So sustainability is a very broad concept and it's, there are so many different definitions for it. So could you provide a brief definition of sustainability and exp also explain why it's crucial for governments and, and individuals to embrace it, especially in today's times? It's a great question and the perfect place to start because if I asked five people to define sustainability, I'll get 50 different answers yeah. because everybody does have a different definition. So for me, sustainability at this stage of the game really is a catch-all term for anything that builds a better future. So obviously environmental gets the lion's share of the PR. That's one big part of it, but it's not the only part. It's also the, the social elements. So human rights, labor rights, even down to animal welfare, charity, philanthropy, and then going on to the governance side of things. So transparency, monitoring corporations, monitoring governments, the, the more boring side of things that I tend to gravitate towards a little more. So all of that wrapped up is really what sustainability means to me. And I suppose the importance for everybody to get involved is because it kind of, I hate that I'm about to say this, it takes a village. But I, I also believe that there are different levels of, ex, there should be different levels of expectations depending on which stakeholders we're talking about. So for individuals, people power, bottom-up approach, absolutely. I believe we should continue to do all of the great things we've done since essentially the 60s at the beginning of the modern movement. And then there's also the private sector. And I am a big believer that because they have access to capital and capacity and resources that individuals just don't, the lion's share of the work should really fall on the private sector. And to be frank, they got us in the mess, so they should get us out of it too. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So how do these businesses actually strike a balance between profit and sustainability? Because in the private sector, profit is a very important component. And so are they kind of mutually exclusive or can they be aligned? I believe they're quite aligned when they're done the right way. And there's plenty of, of case studies and statistics that float around talking about how a business that is truly sustainable or mission-driven outperforms their peers basically every single time they're examined. So when it's done the right way and it's actually embraced as part of a, a mission or an organization and it's not just greenwashing or fluff, then we do see profit, profitability and purpose, the two Ps, working hand in hand. 
And even though it is, it's still a sizable chunk of the private sector are on that sustainability journey. A very small number of them have entered into sort of this virtuous cycle where now they're no longer competing solely on profit. They're competing on how to be more sustainable. And the example I like to give is in the automobile space. So electric vehicles. It used to be just kind of one company had an electric vehicle, but now pretty much every major automobile producer has some sort of an electric vehicle. So what that means is that the bar has been raised. So now you can't differentiate with an electric vehicle. You need to differentiate on something more. And I do work with a few automotive clients and they are looking at, okay, what's next? EVs are not perfect. They have their problems. They're better than a combustion engine, but there must be something more that they can do to innovate and to to differentiate. So that's how the virtuous cycle starts to work. And we see that across different industries. So how do you, and now let's move to, I mean, you've talked about the private sector. Let's move to governments. And how do you think that expression says it all, but I'm still going to ask you the question. How do you think they play or do they play a role in sustainability policies and regulations? And how do you think they can, because they also need to look at economic growth, right? So how do they create this balance? Or do you think they're doing enough from your experience with all the different projects that you've been working on? So there's a great web resource called the Climate Action Tracker. And they're, I think they're an NGO. They've done a really good job at monitoring how well each country is performing against their stated Paris climate agreements. And they found that currently, and I think Paris comes up for renewal, I should know this, but I think it's next year or two years from now, there, there are exactly zero countries on track to meet their Paris climate agreements, which they set for themselves. So on paper, clearly governments are not doing what they said they would. But I'm not entirely fatalistic. I I do believe that governments are doing, by and large, what they can. And I think it really does depend what country you're looking at. So it is a case-by-case basis. If you look at a lot of the advanced democracies, especially those like the United States or even Singapore, for example, there there are vested interests that do prevent a lot of progress that I think those on the more activist side would like to see. But then you look at a place like, for example, China, where I lived and worked for a decade, and because of the way the government is, because it is quite command and control, it is sort of the example of command and control economy, the government says something, it happens, so a lot of progress ends up taking place. And that's what we've seen there as well. And of course, there are you know, conversations happening all over the place about the North and South divide, developed versus developing countries, and who should take the lion's share of responsibility, how much they should be moving the needle. So it's a highly nuanced conversation. By and large, government should be doing more. This is my take and to answer your question. But overall, they are being held back up by a lot of vested interests. That was a long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, but I, I get it. I understand where you're coming from and it yeah it makes a lot of sense actually so how do you you know we've we hear a lot about the united nations and the sustainability development goals that have been set in place is there something that 
you think is moving in the right direction with reference to that? What, what through your personal experience, what have you seen and where do you think it is at at the moment? The Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, have been a great galvanizing force for getting particularly business behind this idea of building a better, more sustainable future. And particularly if we look at them versus the their predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals, which by and large were sort of an abject failure, the SDGs are doing a lot of great things. I think what the SDGs have done particularly sorry, well I, is... Uh, sorry, I just want to interrupt. You said that um, sure. that was like an abject failure. Why was that so? I mean, short answer, but... <laughs> they yeah, they they didn't meet the goals they were they set for themselves. So I, from a statistics point of view, they they weren't even close in the great greenwashing. I go actually I go in depth as to how the the millennium development goals were formed and why, again, going back to vested interests, really diluting what the potential for the MDGs was. And then on top of that, just not. And I hate to speak bad of the UN because the UN does amazing work and I'm so glad they exist, but essentially a watered down version of, I think, what people actually intended the MDGs to be. That was rectified with the Sustainable Development Goals, and that has really moved the needle in the right direction. Again, particularly for business, where it's made it really easy to understand how business can contribute, even how governments can contribute, because you have the 17 goals broken down, or is it 19, broken down into a hundred some odd different sub goals. So it makes it really bite-sized and, and easy to get behind. And you start to see, and you, you see now a lot of governments using and corporations using the, the SGG logo or aligning themselves to particular goals. That's a, that's a great move forward. I know we have a bit of time before we start to really parse and analyze how well the SDGs are doing, but just looking at it from the outside, it seems to be going in the right direction. Okay, that's good. That's encouraging, in fact. So you think collaboration and partnerships are essential in sustainability efforts? And if you Absolutely. Could, yeah, some of the projects that you may have worked on where collaboration and partnership has been a thing, if you could just highlight some of those projects and where you think there was a success. Absolutely. So in my experience, particularly working as a consultant with, with BSR, we did a lot of work around what the, the firm called collaborative initiatives. So bringing together organizations that are in the same sector that likely have a lot of shared issues when it comes to sustainability to sit them around a table and figure out what the solutions are. It seems like a simple idea on the surface, but it's something that's pretty groundbreaking because these organizations, they tend not to talk to each other. They hold the cards close to the chest, but particularly with sustainability, sustainability, a lot of the issues we find are either industry agnostic or something that somebody has already solved before. There really is very rarely an occasion where we need to reinvent the wheel, which is a good thing. So if the answers exist, then we can help push everybody else along. So certainly with these collaborative initiatives with BSR, but also currently I am the chair of the Asia Sustainability Leaders Council for the conference board. And as a caveat, I'm not speaking on their behalf today, but certainly with that organization and with the group that, that I chair, there are sustainability executives from a wide, a wide range of different industries. And we find that with them, 
they all share the same issues. They all share the same headaches and complications that they need to answer. It doesn't matter if they're in petrochemicals, automotive, fashion, doesn't matter. It's all sort of the same things, particularly here in Asia, where a lot of those executives operate. So working collaboratively, really sitting down, speaking to peers, speaking to to share stakeholders with shared interests is absolutely the way to go. It's also one of the SDGs. I think it's the last one. It's it's called partnerships. So at a broad international level, it's also recognized as the the right method to try to answer a lot of our, our questions. So what is that one challenge that you're, because you said that they all seem to have one common challenge. And so what is it? that you know they're all struggling with and they talk about together as collaborators yeah. partners <laughs> the one that comes up again and again and again are issues around keeping up with regulations transparency and reporting so so how they essentially keep up with especially in asia because that's primarily my focus asia pacific how do you keep up with how fast things are changing at a political level with regulations and at an international level with all of these sort of things coming online where, okay, the, the EU has particular standards, you have to meet the US has standards, then in APAC, we have standards depending which country you're from. So how do they keep up with all of this so that they stay one step ahead as a as multinational businesses of where the regulators are going, because that's very important for them for from a, a social license to operate perspective, but also just a keeping on the good side of government perspective. That's the key headache. And one we don't have a solution to just yet. Just yet. But I think in time, you will get a solution for that as well. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we have to talk about your books before we discuss anything else. So what kind of brought you to writing these books? What was what was the initiative that kind of pushed you into it? And then if you could highlight some some bits of the books, both your books, and what do you think that you're able to communicate and you know the messaging through your books? That's one and two have you seen any kind of what is what have the feedback what is the feedback that's been the most highlighted after people have read your books the thank you the the first book sustainability for the rest of us i think that was published back in 2020 so the height of covid so the the impetus for that was really seeing how individuals, everyday people, consumers, were so confused by the concepts around sustainability. And in full transparency, my people in my profession have done a terrible job at communicating what to do, how to do it. We get caught up in our scientific jargon or our doomism. So I wanted to create something that was very approachable, that made sense, that really spoke to people, not as a an activist would necessarily speak to people. And I wouldn't even classify myself as an activist, but really as just a normal human being doing normal human being things. So I, I take my approach really much by calling myself a pragmatic altruist, right? I care. We all care, yeah. but there's only so much realistically that we can do. And one of those things that 
most people are not going to do is go live off the grid on a kibbutz or go back to the dark ages. So if today is our starting point in modern society is our starting point, what do we do with that? And where do we go from there? So that was really the, the starting for the first book and getting that message out there in a very small, practical way. It's in the subtitle, Five Easy Things You Can Actually Do to Save the World. So that was the first book. And that's been, I don't want to pat myself on the back. It seems disingenuous, but it's it's been called the what was the quote that I like to I like to talk about the the best resource for sustainability in modern times somebody said one other reviewer had said that if you want to save the world you have to have a copy of this book so great praise really happy about that very excited the second book the great greenwashing I I think insanity was probably the reason I started that one (laughs) because why would you decide to write a second book the first one I was naive the second one I knew better but I did it anyways but the second one all about greenwashing which is a very topical issue today and how initially I wanted to look at how companies were wrapping themselves in the language of sustainability to try to fool consumers to buy their stuff but the more I did work on that. And the more I peeled back the layers, I realized, oh my gosh, it's not just corporations, it's it's governments, it's celebrities, it's influencers, it's everybody is doing this. So the book got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it ended up the size that it is. It's it's quite a quite a hefty volume. So that's the 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 piece with the great greenwashing is to really inform people as much as possible around the things that are going on so that they can educate themselves and protect themselves against the lies that corporations, governments, and, and influencers are peddling. Overall, and this is to your second question, the the biggest bit of praise that I've received is, and the one that I like, I, I appreciate the most, is people saying that the books are approachable, that the writing style is something they can understand, that it's not too academic, it's not too scientific, it's not arrogant, it's just... I sort of write as I speak. That's that's kind of my thing. So I don't know how I, I lucked out in being able to do that, but that's something that people definitely appreciate in the writing is it's just like having a conversation with somebody. So I, I definitely appreciate they've said that. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's good. I think I need to pick up copies of both your books. So it's, yeah, because I think it's important. You're absolutely right. As an individual, for example, with me, if I pick up, I, I'm interested in in sustainability and what's happening in on the planet today, which is why I decided to to produce and host a show called Now Boarding, and that's really the main focus. But for me to understand the depth of what really is is going on today and how. It's possible for me as an individual, I'm not a corporation, I'm not a part of any government. So for me as an individual to see how I could make a difference, I think to read a book like what you've just mentioned, the two books that you've written, I think I would be able to understand and maybe I'd be able to pick up details from it that I could then incorporate into my life. And I think that is so, so important. But you're, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of jargon out there, which, you know, would probably go over everyone who, individuals who, who don't really understand that language, the scientific or whatever else is in there. So, no, I, I'm so happy that that you've actually got these two books out. And I'm hoping that as 
we progress, we hear, we see more writings from you where you're able to communicate in a simple language the things that we can do in order to save our planet. So I don't know if there is something else which is well round the corner for you in terms of writing or you're still thinking about it or you think I'm very much still in in marketing mode with this second book. <laughs> it second just book. launched. Yeah, it just launched at the end of June across the Commonwealth and it doesn't launch in North America until February. So I think for the next year ish, I'll definitely be be in marketing mode. But I would venture to guess by the time that starts to settle down, my fingers will get itchy and I'll want to write something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that'd be amazing. I'll, I'll watch out for it. So how? <laughs> so what are next steps for you other than marketing your book? I think for me, it's really, it, it goes back into, I don't want to use it as a marketing of the book, but but capitalizing on the the findings from the greenwashing book, because there there are a lot of meaty, juicy things in there that I think audiences need to know about. So certainly going on the, the speaking circuit is really important, whether that's in sustainability, specifically speaking to my peers or generally speaking to, to general audiences. And then also working all of that into how I engage with corporations and working with corporations on how they then communicate their messages in a way that's not going to greenwash and does push the sustainability agenda. So I think that's quite important because time is finite when it comes to capitalizing on a book. So I should use it while it's here. But again, the 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 issues of greenwashing are not really talked about too much. It is, but not at the the level, I think, of a deeply researched book. At least that's what my competitive analysis showed a couple of years ago before I started. But it's it is a salient issue that people do need to to know about. And certainly when I when I talk to different audiences, whether that is more formally in businesses or with my peers or even on on TikTok, which I love. <laughs> I love social media and being able to engage with people there. The issue is is very much front of mind and something people are are demanding answers for. Okay. Good. Good. I wish you all the very best. And Thank you. I'm going to watch the space. <laughs> and yeah, no, it was wonderful talking to you, John. Thank you. I really appreciate Absolutely. the conversation and and the work that you're doing. I think it's so important. And the more people get to know and hear about it, I think it's it's going to benefit. And that that's the most important thing. So really appreciate this thank you so very much and how long are you planning to be in melbourne it's long term so i'm here for a while i've been here since 2019 so this is my this is my home for for the foreseeable future <laughs> excellent excellent and the next time you're in singapore and i, I am also here we definitely have to meet up Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much, John. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you for having me. Yes. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Now Boarding, a travel podcast. Check out other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And of course, don't forget to share your thoughts with us. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes only on Now Boarding, a travel podcast.